words can scarcely describe the privilege that God has granted to each of us this evening to have the health and the disposition to come together. And as we do that, aren't we yet blessed in another way with so many acquaintances, family, and friends who have come our way on this Sunday? And certainly for your presence, we're so very appreciative and thankful. And I've also, uh, the sick that was mentioned earlier, many over the past few weeks have now improved in their health and are able to be back with us today. What a joy indeed and a privilege to appreciate God's goodness in those ways. As you may have noticed in the bulletin, the lesson that we will consider briefly this evening is one whose title I have placed on the screen or the wall here to my left, to dance or not to dance. In fact, it was Shakespeare in some of the plays of the ancient days used a phrase not unlike that. In fact, it was there, of course, stated far differently. But tonight, as we consider an issue that is of interesting and relevant measure today, we will also look rather importantly and most carefully into the Word of God to find answers about this interesting and very important subject. By way of introduction, could I ask you to ponder with me some of these ideas? You and I are well aware that the world in which we live is one in which the issue of entertainment is one that is extremely pertinent. It's one in which, in fact, guides and leads so many through a number of the choices that are made in their life on a daily basis. In fact, we live in an entertainment-crazed world. Wouldn't that be a fair statement? So many tools and technological advances are at momentary disposal to you and me that provide instant entertainment, instant gratification, if you will. And in fact, that also, that idea of entertainment, has something, of course, to do with some of those issues I've listed near the top of that screen. So many activities are pursued with practically reckless abandon for the idea of satisfying the measures of the flesh. Things like gambling. The state of Tennessee passed not many years backward now by way of referendum and approval to a state lottery, for example. And isn't it true that so many other activities are pursued in many instances without giving any thought to the correctness of those matters from the perspective of eternity? Cursing, lying, dishonesty, gambling, various sexual promiscuities, if you will. All the while, amongst that list might well be included the subject with which we shall entertain ourselves tonight, that of dancing. I make those statements not lightly because the Word of God challenges us ever to not simply accept something as being appropriate in the eyes of heaven, but rather to look deeply within the pages of the Word of God as to whether or not that activity is acceptable by decree of heaven. How often is it within the pages of God's inspired Word? Is it that we find matters in which the world is contrasted to the godliness that God demands? I've listed some passages there for your consideration. In James chapter 4, verse 4, what was that famous statement by there, the name, man named James? Where there he so powerfully said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James left nothing to misunderstand. He plainly stated that there is a grand contrast between the presentations and pursuits of the world and those desires of godliness as presented by the great God of heaven. One could add many more passages to that listing. 
Wasn't it our blessed Savior himself who in John the 17th chapter, the night prior to his own crucifixion, prayed so earnestly that, Father, that they be not of the world, speaking of those apostles. He did not pray that God would take them from the world. They must live there, but the Lord's earnest prayer was that they not be of the world. It would the same thing be appropriately descriptive of you and me today? Certainly it would. Consider other passages, that beautiful statement and challenging at the same time in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Listen to the statement here as John contrasts it. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, that he that doeth the will of God abideth forever." we noticed that it was not only certain of the New Testament writers, but it was the Lord, it was Peter, it was John. They all presented a grand distinction between the pursuits of God and that which is encouraged by the world. Precious little in that way has changed. Though 20 centuries of time may have elapsed, we nonetheless must still appreciate the world condones and pursues, often wildly, many things that God doesn't. When it comes to entertainment, we too must then ask, is the form of entertainment in which I'm pursuing, in which I'm participating, is it one that heaven finds approved, or is it one that heaven condemns? Tonight we will look at one of the elements in that listing that we presented earlier, namely that of dancing, and seek whether or not we can find information as revealed by God that touches this subject. We shall find that many things do, and we will be happy to receive what God has declared on this timely and fashionable subject. As you notice that screen coming to its conclusion, we are then going to ask specifically about this modern dance. Is it condemned, or rather, is it approved? Might I suggest that we first would do well to define somewhat more carefully the subject of which we speak tonight, and following that, to look more interestingly at the revelation of God as it touches that subject. And with that said, consider some of these defining ideas as they relate to dance. First of all, it goes without saying that one could consider a dictionary definition, and that's what I've chosen to list first. If you consult Webster's Dictionary, it simply reads dancing as the following, to move the body and feet in rhythm, ordinarily to music. That's not a shocking definition. I suspect we each would have expected something much like it. But you might notice in the very statement of it, some things are presented that might lead us to more carefully anticipate modern dance. And what's it like? I have noticed for you that, again, the styles of dancing have changed rapidly over the generations. Today, that which may well be appreciated as modern dance a half century ago would not have been thought of. And at the dancing of that day wouldn't have been thought of 50 years prior to that. Each generation, it seems, has a desire to place their stamp of individuality on the occasion of the day, be it by way of fashion, by way of dance, by way of other things as they take place in society. And the same is true of dancing. For instance, one, though one may read about it, dances such as the Charleston and the cha-cha-cha are not in vogue any longer. They were for a former day. However, more modern ones such as line dancing, there are many who are not interested even in that. 
it might well be stated that much of the modern dance is in such a fashion and way that it is an unspecified twisting to music. There doesn't seem to be any natural repetitiveness to the motions involved. It's just an unspecified moving and twisting, gyrating or bouncing to a given degree of music. As one considers some of those ideas, though, about music and about dancing, what is it about dance that seems to make it so attractive? Why is it that there are clubs and dance halls numbering practically unlimited around the cities and various places in our land and even worldwide that seem so popular? And there are those who pursue their participation on a virtually nightly basis. Well, suffice it to say, and I've quoted an authority on the subject, and the authority states it as follows, the end product of dancing is doubtless the same. Physical pleasure and the activity of dancing and the sexual awareness of a partner, whether embraced or half-consciously observed. It goes without saying that as we consider the issue of dancing, there are three that we must consider. First is the individual, him or herself. Secondly is the person's partner. And thirdly is anyone else who may be present and observant or witnessing the dance itself. What are the implications and consequences on all of those involved? It goes without saying that when one is in the arms of the opposite sex and one is in such a fashion to observe the movement, whether slow or fast, whether to a specified beat or not, that we can appreciate the great tendency of sexual stimulation on the part of one or both or those who may be observing that motion. That is, someone not specifically involved in that dance, but who's present and watching. And all three must be considered. All three must be considered from the perspective of what does the Scripture say about that situation. Tonight, we shall attempt to do the same. As that screen... <clears throat> excuse me. As that screen comes to the very last statement upon it, might we observe then that that's simply a conclusion. We are aware of what it does. We're aware of the circumstances involved. But with that said, we must hastily, of course, move to what does God say about it. That ultimately is all that you and I are interested in at this particular moment in time. What saith the Scriptures? That was Paul's famous question of Romans 4 verse 3. In fact, when Paul was striving to consider the greatest need for the Roman brethren, when he may have provided any number of pursuits and answers, his desire, what saith the Scriptures? That song that we sang together just a few moments ago, in fact, is so appropriate. It is, in fact, a verbatim quote from the last two verses of the 139th Psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be the desire of each of us for God through His Word to search and cleanse any wickedness or evil or ungodliness that might be found so that we could in fact rest in the precious blessings of Him not only in the here but looking forward to the hereafter. What then does God say? As we stated earlier in the lesson tonight, the world wholeheartedly endorses dancing in all fashions, forms, styles, and types. One can scarcely question that statement, but that's not our question. What does God say about it? As we begin that consideration, might we note dancing, in a way, is mentioned often in the Bible. 
But we must be interested and cautious about the context of what reference is made so that we do not draw conclusions that are not warranted by the contextual evidence. I think you'll see exactly what's meant when we look at these together first. The Bible does make note on one occasion of the dancing of animals. In Isaiah 13, verse 21, in the days of the ancient Old Testament, as the prophet Isaiah spoke about the doom and the destruction that God was going to bring upon Babylon due to her opposition to the people of God, due to her failure to accept the things that God had revealed, Isaiah foretold that doom by making note of the dancing of wild male goats and we might well appreciate that as you and I would stand at a distance and see some goats perhaps playfully working in a particular field or having a jolly time in that fashion, Isaiah used that idea to foretell the doom and destruction that was going to come on Babylon. The specific way he put it was, this particular dancing of animals will be virtually all that will take place when once this gigantic and powerful city existed in this area. It would be a doomed time. Obviously, the dancing of animals has no direct connection to whether or not humans could engage in dancing with, between mixed sexes. Well, let's consider yet another dancing. In addition to the dancing of animals, we notice that the dance of children is also listed as well. In Job 21:11, as well as in Luke 7 verse 32, our Savior in that latter occasion even made note of the dance of children in the streets. Again, the reference is perhaps an easy one. You and I have often observed a little child who perhaps in play will play hopscotch and they dance around and are in the process of playing a game. Again, that seems to have little bearing on whether or not two adults, a man and a woman, could engage in appropriate dance one of another. Young children are innocent. They are not aware of those sexual stimulations that an adult would be. And so again, that reference in both Job and that New Testament one as well does not directly touch the answer to the question that we desire tonight. Let's consider a third. In addition to those, the Bible on more than one occasion makes note of the dance among women. It might be fair to say that in our day, that would be taken as a very unusual thing in the sense that if women were seen to be dancing one with another, most would probably consider homosexuality to be at discussion. That's not the way the Bible discusses it. You see, in the ancient Old Testament day, and even in the early New Testament one, quite often women are stated to have danced in a time of celebration in a time of jubilation, if you will. Consider as far back as Exodus 15. After God had parted the Red Sea and the children of Israel had been blessed by going through on dry ground, what was it that took place in the next chapter? The very sister of Moses, Miriam, led the, children of, led the women of the children of Israel in dancing. There is no reference to men being involved in that dance. Rather, we know that it only states that she and the women danced in celebration for the thankfulness of God's deliverance. What's more, in 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 and following, the celebration among the women that took place after David's victory over Goliath, one chapter earlier. That's but two references. 
I've listed also a couple of others in 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 29, all of which have a similar backdrop. Women are stated to have danced among themselves in the pursuit of thankfulness to the deliverance militarily that God had provided in one way or another. All of that, though, still has not touched the subject that is of greatest import to you and me tonight. Let's consider a fourth one. There's also a rejoicing that is mentioned. A dance in which women again would involve themselves most often in a dance in which a rejoicing was taking place. In Psalm 30 verse 11, as well as Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 and even Jeremiah 31 all make mention of this scene. And it might be possible here to note that men may well have been present but they danced in segregated fashion. The women did not dance with the men. No single reference to that for this type dance is given anywhere. Consider, for example, that statement in Ecclesiastes, a time to mourn, a time to dance. You and I can look upon that and draw too much if we are not careful. That is not an open statement of heaven's approval of all forms and types of dancing. Rather, that was a segregated type of dance. Not unlike, for instance, that which David did at one scene there in 2 Samuel chapter 6. To say all of that is to say we have yet to find that text that we would desire. Consider yet a fifth one. There seems to be a strong reference to, in some of the Psalms, dancing was a part of worship in the Old Testament. Specifically in Psalm 149 as well as Psalm 150. The express mention is made that as they danced, it was a part of praising and worshiping God. We quickly can make two conclusions. First, we understand that there is no New Testament authorization for dancing in worship. We would, in fact, be abominable in our worship in the sight of heaven if we were to add to those five elements that the New Testament has authorized. We are to pray, to sing, to take of the Lord's Supper, to study or proclaim the Word of God, as well as to appreciate that we give as we've been prospered. Those five and no more are authorized. We would not be at liberty to include dancing as a part of worship. We might also add, it is greatly questionable whether dancing, even in the Old Testament, was ever approved as a part of worship. For in Psalm 149 and Psalm 150, who was it that introduced it? Was it God? Or was it David? If David introduced it of his own accord, not with approval or authorization from heaven, then God never approved of it. That's certainly a good point for us to keep in mind. It, to the point then, at this point, we still have yet to find that text that would directly address the subject before us. I would mention some other passages that seem so strongly to indicate other matters. Quite often, dancing, as it's presented in the Bible, was the very issue and matter that could produce such evil passions and often led to disastrous consequences. In Exodus 32, after the children of Israel had, had again been led across the Red Sea, if you will, after they had arrived at Mount Sinai and even those chapters thereafter, after Moses had ascended on Mount Sinai and had been gone for a while, what was it that the people were doing? At the very base, a golden calf had been fashioned and they were dancing around it. 
Every indication in that chapter is that this was a type of dance in which the sexual stimulation was rampant. Everything about it indicated that, in fact, the great heat and displeasure of God was easily observed. That's but one example of what dancing was able to do. Consider yet another in Matthew 14. In the New Testament times, it's a story that we well are so familiar with. The scene involved John the Baptist. He'd been imprisoned. And as the very individual, the king, was desirous of doing with him, he had not released him. However, there was a time when there was a celebration, a party, if you will, and Herod rashly made a promise. Might we remember that that promise was made when a lovely woman was dancing in front of him. The stimulation that he felt was such that he promised her whatever she asked for, even to the half of his kingdom. Upon the urging of her mother, he asked for the head of John the Baptist. Isn't it interesting then that when she asked for the head of John the Baptist, the king followed through in his statement. John the Baptist was beheaded. But we might remember that there was a dance by Herodias' daughter that was in part that which led to that request. We see then that the passionate thing that can take place in dancing is exceedingly strong. As you and I think about all of these issues, we can conclude at least this point by this statement. As we have looked for the scriptural studies in terms of this dancing, it's fair to say that we have found no explicit statement that has said, Thou shalt not dance. We have not found an open verbatim statement that made that point. But as is often the case, the ultimate conclusion is reached as we consider the principles that are involved, those things that are touched upon, if not directly, then powerfully indirectly, with compellingly imperative statements. And thus, as we have so far inferred that dancing is not looked upon between men and women in a good fashion in the Bible, there's a whole array of even stronger evidence that we shall turn to next. Things that will challenge us yet again and again. I've listed on this very screen some of those thoughts I would ask you to consider with me. First of all, what about the principle involved in the usage of the term lasciviousness? As you and I read in our King James Bibles, for example, we encounter this term, and it's a lengthy word to be sure, lasciviousness. I would submit that that's not a term that we often hear on a daily basis. Typically, conversation does not use or produce the usage of the word lascivious or the noun form lasciviousness. However, the Bible uses that word not infrequently. What does it mean? What does it involve? What matters might be included in it? Let's define that term first. Lasciviousness means as living without any moral restraint. Some synonym words are licentiousness, sensuality, lustful indulgence. To go a step further, it relates to that which is especially as indecent and outrageous sexual behavior. Other synonym words, debauchery, indecency, flagrant immorality. But notice it also includes indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females. To say all of that, you might note that I took the latter portion of that definition from the rather noted Greek scholar, Dr. Thayer. As we make that observation, 
Might we especially notice some of the terms debauchery, the unchaste handling of males and females? We understand that in the dance, there is those matters that in fact stimulate the sexual arousals of one or the other or perhaps even those witnessing or watching. And all the while, we've already noted then that linkage is ever more present. Dancing is clearly lascivious in that the whole design, the whole purpose, the whole thrust relates to the very definition that we've given for the term lascivious which is not an arbitrary definition. It is one that the New Testament utilized. It's the one the Holy Spirit intended. It's the one that's given to you and me by the revelation of heaven. In a moment, might we just consider the matter of the word lust? You and I perhaps might be of a disposition to argue, but I can control what my thoughts are. I can dance with one of the opposite sex, and I am not one who would permit those kinds of lustful thoughts to enter my mind? You and I, as we would hear that kind of argument, we should immediately ask, well, what about the other person? Can you control that person's thoughts? Are you in such a position of power and strength to caution and bring their influentiality to such a point that they will not have lustful thoughts or lustful considerations? All the while, we, of course, must remember that our Savior did say in Matthew 7, verses 27, or Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, where he made use of contrast to the Old Testament. Thou hast heard it hath been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that he that looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Thus our Savior placed lust on an absolute plateau of evil as it emanates from the heart of a person. Lust is that strong and it is that powerful. Thus we must carefully observe that dancing or any activity that would promote a lustful thinking, a lustful position, a lustful consideration must be avoided at all cost. There must be no association with it. All of that leads us to say, by way of a continuation, that these thoughts would even further be powerfully able to be stated. As you and I just listed lasciviousness, it's time to look carefully at some texts where that word is used and how is it used. Let's begin in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. In verses 21 to 23 of that noble chapter, we remember that Jesus was in discussion with several of that day. They were in fact Pharisees. And as he discussed with them, he expressly noted that that which defiles a man is not that which enters, but that which exits. Is that not what he stated? They were trying to state then that the washing of hands was ultimately important and vital. But Jesus took it far beyond what they encountered. He said, what comes out of the heart is that which defileth a man. And he proceeded to list several items. As you look through that list of items, many are so apparent like fornication and murder and adultery. But look down over the last four in that list. Lasciviousness is one of them. Jesus stated that lasciviousness that emanates and pours forth from the heart is that which will defile a man that which will cause him to be unapproved in the sight of heaven. Lasciviousness is condemned so strongly in this text, isn't it? 
in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Again, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul made reference to the works of the flesh, and he shortly would contrast it to the fruit of the Spirit. Amongst that lengthy list of works of the flesh, again, it, can, it includes so many that are familiar, such as adultery, fornication, evil speaking, and so forth. But notice that lasciviousness is included. And to drive that nail homeward with the strength to be found in it, what is it that's found at the close of verse 21? I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It would be difficult to frame an English sentence of stronger force than that. Those guilty of these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Is what the Apostle Paul declared. 1 Peter 4 verse 3 is yet another listing where this time the inspired penman Peter calls to our attention various sins of the Gentiles, things of which the Gentile nation was typically guilty. Among that list he includes things like excessive wine, partying, social drinking, but notice what else is there, lasciviousness. Peter leaves us again, no doubt, to observe the fact that this was not a wholesome activity. It was not approved as a matter of entertainment. Isn't it significant that not one time in all the New Testament is lasciviousness encouraged? It is condemned in every text it's encountered. And yet we have seen that dancing is lasciviousness, and thus it too would be directly condemned as a wholesome matter of entertainment between a man and a woman who are unmarried, of course. And all the while, that issue, that matter, the lasciviousness to be seen challenges us time and again to appreciate that what the world may condone and even approve and even encourage, God doesn't. Anything lascivious, be it dancing or otherwise, would be condemned then by virtue of the Word of God. Near the close of that screen, I've listed several more concepts that would be worthy of our consideration. These principles to which we mentioned earlier, as you and I think about then what forms of entertainment would be wholesome and would be acceptable, might we observe that there are various principles found in the Word of God that that entertainment should satisfy, principles that should be obeyed. The first one I've listed has to do with the fact that that person who is interested in pleasing God <coughs> excuse me, must so conduct him or herself <coughs> excuse me, as to be a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's a very direct statement from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, isn't it? Confirmation is such that to the world that must not be allowed to happen, but rather transformation in such a way that the Word of God lives within us, directs and controls us. Though the world may condone it, that doesn't mean God does. Though the world may approve of it, it doesn't mean the church should. We can easily see that then whatever entertainment we pursue, we ought to ask, can I maintain my influence as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, while I'm involved in this? But what about another principle? In Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul expressly stated in rather direct language, did he not, to 
mortify the fleshly desires or the earthly pursuits. There's another term, mortify. What does that mean? It means to put to death. Obviously, then, those individuals in the Colossian congregation were to put to death, have nothing to do with those listing of sinful activities that Paul gave there. We thus should also realize that we must mortify those mortal fleshly desires and strive to entertain ourselves and influence others in ways that will aid them to be pleasing unto God. But in the third case, Romans 14 verse 21 we noted earlier in the lesson tonight that a third class of individuals to be considered would be those who might witness my participation in dance with one of the opposite sex. What about that class of people? Paul was so greatly concerned about them, and he so abruptly stated, put no stumbling block before anyone that would cause their weakened spirit to ultimately be lost. We must have enough love of consideration, recognition for the worth of the souls of others to not purposefully put before them a stumbling block or activity or example whereby they, by their consideration of its correctness, would participate therein and thus forfeit their eternal salvation. That would be a very unloving attitude for us to have, wouldn't it? Paul said, I will eat no meat as long as it causes my brother to stumble. Paul was so concerned about the soul salvation of others that he would choose to participate in no activity that would pose to them a stumbling block of spirituality. Notice in one chapter earlier in Romans 13 verse 14, the very last verse of that powerful chapter, we read about a passage that tells us that by direct commandment, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy the lusts thereof. We understand that there are fleshly propensities and desires within the human frame, but Paul expressly says we must make no provision to satisfy those sinful fleshly desires. We have a higher calling as Christians. And we are told by God that there's no temptation going to be given to us but what we're able to escape from and overcome. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. We then can note that this matter of dancing or other entertainment much like it would not in any fashion be such as they could overwhelm us if we use the Word of God as our guide. We can avoid those things. We can choose other wholesome entertainment instead. Perhaps fifthly, lastly on that sheet you'll notice the very text that we used for a lesson text tonight, taken from the closing chapter of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, ever so brief, but yet ever so compelling. As Paul considered his own manner of life amongst the Thessalonians, and as he admonished and urged them, he said, abstain from every form of evil. That's the American Standard rendering. The King James puts it, abstain from all appearance of evil. That's rather strong language, isn't it? To abstain means to have nothing to do with, to eliminate oneself from, to avoid. Avoid every form of evil. To look at a text like that one, it has much to say about many of those activities we listed at the outset of the lesson tonight. In terms of dancing, 
it seems as though the scriptures have been very stern in its consideration of that subject and leads to this conclusion. In the conclusion, we've noted that the study of dancing is a good question. All questions that you and I may ask are good questions if we're willing to come with an open mind and an open heart and let God answer them. We have looked tonight at many circumstances related to the matter of dancing. And though the question is good and wholesome and worthwhile, we've noted the answer is a very strong one. Being lascivious, the Bible condemns dancing. It has no place in the entertainment life of those desirous of being pleasing to God. And as such, we must ever then lead our children to appreciate that statement so that they will choose other wholesome entertainments and things that are in character with being those interested in God's will. The matter of lasciviousness challenges us as we close our lesson to appreciate that this kind of dancing that we often see on the television, this kind of dancing that is so prevalent and modern in our day and time, it is a dancing, it is stimulation, and it's entertainment. Though it may be for so many that is not approved by God. We can do far better. We should do then far better as those interested in doing God's will. This very night then we may each ask ourselves the personal question, am I a faithful Christian? Are you a faithful Christian? The answer to that question obviously has eternal consequences. For only those who are judged faithful by their works, Revelation 22, 12, will be granted the blessing of entrance into heaven. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Have you done his commandments? Have you obeyed the first principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you have not done that, realize that Jesus commanded you believe upon him as the Son of God. He also demanded you repent of the sins that have separated you from heaven's grace and heaven's will. Upon that belief and repentance, he then demands that you confess his glorious and matchless name as the only begotten Son of God. That eunuch uttered that confession in Acts 8.37. What a blessing it was. For following that, Philip and he went down into the water and Philip baptized him for the remission of his sins. At that moment, his sins were washed away. We could also baptize you tonight if that's the need of your life. The baptismal waters are warm. Everything is ready. But if you have become a Christian, but you haven't lived faithfully to the calling of God, realize that you need to come back to your first love. In greatness and in power, the Savior died for you, and he shed his blood that you might be with him in heaven one day. If you have lost interest, become defocused, such that you have perhaps brought reproach upon yourself and on the influence of Jesus and on the church, come back to your first love. The Lord will forgive those sins. Tonight, we'd be happy to pray on your behalf, for you and with you, that that very thing would happen. If any of these things is the need of your life tonight, we'd be honored, happy to aid you in your obedience. Brother Harold has chosen the hymn of encouragement. This is a convenient time, an opportune time. Behold, today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. And if we could assist you tonight, let that be done while together we stand and while we sing.